Welcome to the KSTE Farm Hour. Here's KSTE's Farmer Fred, Fred Hoffman. California's earlier starting, hotter burning wildfires, as well as the extended triple-digit heat waves this year, are playing havoc with farming operations. We have that report. What about us? That's what California's farmers, farm organizations, and politicians are asking the Trump administration. Their concern? How California's huge specialty crop industries are getting shortchanged by the presidential tariff relief money, which is primarily headed to Midwest pork, soybean, and corn operations. The latest report from the USDA? Most farms are losing money. Is there any good news? Well, people are very fond of their tractor's color, and they're loyal, too. But even that may be changing. It's all coming up on this week's KSTE Farm Hour. Let's get started. Wildfires continue to burn in Shasta, Lassen, Mariposa, Mendocino, and Del Norte counties, not to mention a number of additional fires. Currently, farmers and ranchers are totaling up the damages. The largest of the fires, the Car Fire, 125,000 acres outside Redding. There have been two firefighter fatalities. Over 4,200 personnel are fighting that blaze, and at press time, only 35% contained. Over a 1,000 residences have been destroyed up there in Shasta County in the Car Fire. Also, 18 commercial structures and 477 outbuildings. And at press time, the Mendocino Complex fires, the river and ranch fires are raging. 110,000 acres have been consumed so far. 14 residences and 24 outbuildings destroyed in that place. Meanwhile, down in Mariposa County near Yosemite, the Ferguson fire rages on. 68,000 acres have been consumed. That fire at press time, only 39% contained. And a tip of the cap to California's network of county fair facilities. They're fulfilling a crucial role as staging areas for fire crews and serving as evacuation centers for people and animals. The Mariposa County Fairgrounds and Expo Center in Mariposa is an evacuation center currently housing people and animals displaced by the Ferguson fire. Up in Red Bluff at the Tehama District Fairgrounds, as many as 200 animals are being housed at that site. It's also serving as a fire camp to battle the car fire. In Petaluma, the Sonoma Marin Fairgrounds is housing 70 goats from the Mendocino Complex of Fires. The Lake County Fairgrounds in Lakeport, utility crews responding to fires are being housed there. In Susanville, the Lassen County Fairgrounds are hard at work supporting fire camp crews from CAL FIRE, the U.S. Forest Service, and the Bureau of Land Management. Once again, these county fairgrounds are showing they are bona fide public assets, essential institutions that serve Californians in many important ways. The end of July recorded the continuation of 2018's largest western wildfire, Northern California's Car Fire. The Car Fire has been the most prominent event in what has been a significant western wildfire season to date, which USDA meteorologist Brad Rippey said surpassed 100,000 acres burned. We've totaled more than 4.6 million acres burned across the continental United States and Alaska. That compares to the 10-year average of 3.7, a big surge in the wildfire activity in July with well over 2 million acres burned, almost all of that in the western United States. Or put it another way, that's almost 130% of the 10-year average acreage for the first seven months of the year. You heard Brad Rippey discuss July's dramatic increase in western wildfire activity. 
The car fire by the end of the month was among over 100 wildfires burning in all 11 continental western states and Alaska. The one thing that is really contributing to this explosion of fires across northern California and the northwest has been the combination of the drier weather in the late spring, early summer, as well as the extreme heat temperatures up into the hundreds, even the 110s at times, and then combine that with the long-term drought issues, and we have a really dangerous situation set up. He reminds us that it was just last year that much of the Golden State recovered from what was a four to five year extreme drought period. A lot of dead or dying trees across the western United States providing fuel. Likewise, there are similar fuel loads across parts of the west that could contribute to wildfire activity. And Rippey says perhaps of greater concern, July isn't even the traditional peak of the region's wildfire season. We're seeing an early surge in activity. A lot of times we don't really see this until we get into August. So we are dealing with a very critical situation and extended a longer than normal wildfire season. With the short-term weather forecast calling for hot, dry weather to remain in much of the West, with exceptions including the four corner states undergoing monsoon season. Yet as for other parts of the region... It's not going to end until we get some of the fall rains and snows moving into the Northwest and Northern California, so we've got a long time to go. Especially when factoring in the Santa Ana winds that fuel Southern California wildfire activity in the late fall. I'm Rod Bain reporting for the U.S. Department of Agriculture in Washington, D.C. As mentioned earlier, as firefighters work to control the massive wildfires in Northern California, farmers and ranchers are still assessing the agricultural impact. In Shasta County, the car fire has burned rangeland. Local officials there say it's too early to know the full extent of losses. Evacuations due to the Mendocino Complex fires closed a pear packing house in Lake County, and that's delaying harvest. And the University of California says its rangeland at the Hopland Research Center was hit hard by the fire. As USDA meteorologist Brad Rippey alluded to, the heat wave in California is not only taking its toll as far as wildfires go, it's taking its toll on California's crops. Triple-digit temperatures have lingered in California's Inland Valley for weeks, putting pressure on fruit, nut, and field crops as well. Among the crops that have been affected by the heat, according to the Western Farm Press, include prunes. Extreme heat can cause blue prune, in which plums for prunes drop prematurely. For nut growers, sunburn is always a concern. For instance, extreme heat can damage the leaves of young walnut trees, producing darker kernels that don't bring as much of a premium. Walnut, almond, and pistachio growers have been irrigating their orchards, and almond groves were treated with pesticides and fungicides. High temperatures are also causing regreening of Valencia oranges, forcing growers to treat them and divert them to domestic markets because some foreign trading partners don't accept chemically treated fruit. The heat wave in Southern California damaged avocados as the season was nearing its end and growers are evaluating whether the heat could affect next year's crop, that according to the California Farm Bureau Federation. And rangeland and non-irrigated pasture has continued to deteriorate with the hot, dry weather. Lower elevation range and non-irrigated pasture is rated to be in poor to fair condition, while conditions are somewhat better at the higher elevations. Cattle producers are providing supplemental feed to compensate for the declining nutritional value of that rangeland forage. And long term, the Federal Climate Prediction Center doesn't see a respite from all this heat. They see a likelihood of higher than average temperatures throughout the West over the next three months. 
When it comes to getting a three-way U.S.-Mexico-Canada-North American free trade agreement done this summer... I don't know whether we're going to get an agreement, and it depends on everybody being reasonable. U.S. Trade Ambassador Robert Lighthizer being very frank with senators in an appropriations subcommittee hearing this week, and he said he thinks we're close with Mexico, but if an agreement in principle actually comes about soon, there are timing issues. If you assume that it's going to be signed by the current president of Mexico, President Pena and he's out on December 1st, then you move back 90 days because we can't sign until we have agreement in principle 90 days before. Which would mean that agreement would have to be ready next month. That's due to the U.S. Trade Promotion Authority law, which guarantees Congress a certain amount of time to review an agreement before ratifying it. And, of course, after December 1st, then the U.S. has a totally different Mexican administration to deal with. Plus, Lighthizer says negotiations have been difficult with Canada all along. Gary Crawford for the U.S. Department of Agriculture, Washington. Here's this week's California crop report. Rice is being treated for army worm in Tulare County. Rice was progressing well in the Sacramento Valley. Sunflowers are being treated for head moth. Safflower was fully bloomed and wheat harvest was nearly finished. Sunflowers in Sutter County have begun to defoliate. Grape vineyards are being irrigated. Peaches, nectarines, apricots, figs, table grapes, pears, and plums are being harvested. Stone fruit orchards are being sprayed, irrigated, and fertilized. Summer pruning and topping of harvested stone fruit orchards is ongoing. A few stone fruit growers reported increased disease pressures and fruit drop from the summer's extreme weather. Valencia oranges were harvested. Citrus packers were color sorting as citrus greening was exasperated by the high temperatures. Allnut, walnut, and pistachio orchard irrigation is increasing in response to the excessive high heat experienced this month. Sunburn protection was applied to some walnut groves. Almond hull split was underway but reported to be slower than normal. Almond groves were treated with pesticides and fungicides. The pistachio nuts were progressing well. Sweet corn continues to be harvested here in Sacramento County. The brassica is being harvested in Monterey County. Cucumbers, eggplant, pepper, squash, and zucchini are being harvested in Tulare County. Brussels sprouts and squash continue to progress well in San Mateo County. As we mentioned earlier, rangeland and non-irrigated pasture quality continues to deteriorate in the hot weather. Lower elevation range and non-irrigated pastures were in poor to fair condition. Cattle were provided supplemental feed to compensate for the declining nutritional value of the rangeland forage. Sheep were grazing on retired cropland. Bees were active in sunflower and melon fields. Take the KSTE Farm Hour with you wherever you go. It's available at KSTE.com or the iHeartRadio app in streaming mode, or you can download it from your favorite third-party podcast aggregator, such as iTunes. Are California's farmers getting shortchanged by the Trump administration when it comes to that federal aid package for farmers? California stands to gain very little from a $12 billion federal aid package for U.S. farmers facing new tariffs. That according to state agricultural groups. The three-pronged program set to begin in the fall includes direct financial support for farmers, government purchases of excess crops for food banks, and other programs as well as more marketing funds. The USDA says producers of soybeans, sorghum, corn, wheat, cotton, dairy, and hogs would qualify for the direct aid. According to the San Francisco Chronicle, the direct aid leaves out producers of California's main agricultural exports, including almonds, pistachios, and oranges. Those farmers stand to lose the most if trade tensions escalate with China and other countries. 
Meanwhile, California is facing the brunt of those tariffs from China. The state's most valuable export crops face higher tariffs as those trade tensions arise. China placed higher tariffs on nuts, fruits, and dairy products in July in retaliation for the sanctions the U.S. imposed on Chinese goods. And China is a big market for our top agricultural exports. California's pistachios, $530 million worth, went to China back in 2016. $518 million in almonds. As far as oranges and citrus are concerned, $133 million in exports went to China, and they're facing a 51% tariff rate. California's congressional delegation has also noticed this oversight on the part of the Trump administration. Several Republican House members from California, in addition to several Democrats, are appealing to the Trump administration not to overlook the state's massive specialty crop markets. The website Politico notes that the letter underscores the difficulty facing Republicans and farming interests in California in lobbying the Trump administration. Unlike in the Midwest, where Trump has focused most of his attention on trade and where farmers represent one of the president's key constituencies, California, in Trump's eyes, is so heavily Democratic that Trump has decided not to pay very much attention to all those red precincts in the Central Valley that voted for him in 2016. Representatives Jeff Denham, Devin Nunes, and others said in a letter sent to the Department of Agriculture, Sonny Perdue, that they should receive a share of the $12 billion in mitigation funding that's adequately proportional to the damage that they will face from those retaliatory tariffs. In addition to Denham and Nunes, the letter signatories included Republican Representatives David Valdeo, Ed Royce, and Ken Calvert, as well as Democrats Jim Costa, Jimmy Panetta, Julia Brownlee, Salud Carbajal, and Amy Barra, according to Denham's office. The lawmakers are urging the Trump administration to adopt relief measures that will do as much for growers of high-valued commodities such as tree nuts as for growers of such crops as soybeans, corn, and wheat. When trade disputes really began to boil back in April and it looked like the people that would be most hurt would be farmers, President Trump said... We'll make it up to them. And today, this announcement is a fulfillment of that promise. Agriculture Secretary Sonny Perdue a few days ago announcing a program to help farmers hurt by tariffs and trade uncertainties, which have reduced prices for some of their products and cut off some of their most important export markets. We'll take a look at that program on this edition of Agriculture USA. I'm Gary Crawford. The Department of Agriculture will be authorizing up to $12 billion in programs, which is directly in line with the estimated $11 billion impact of illegal tariffs on agriculture. Agriculture Secretary Sonny Perdue says it's a three-pronged plan. Two of those prongs look to be ramped-up versions of current programs. One has USDA buying up surplus food crops and giving them to food banks and other nutrition programs. USDA does this routinely, but will be doing much more of it. The other one is what is being called the Trade Promotion Program. China and Mexico have been big and growing customers for U.S. farm products, but in retaliation for President Trump's tariffs on steel, aluminum, and other industrial products, China and Mexico have slapped tariffs on U.S. farm products, reducing market opportunities for those products, reducing prices for those products in the process. So, Sonny Purdue's Trade Council, Jason Halfmeister, says... 
nearly all sectors of U.S. agriculture are being affected in some way by these retaliatory actions. Uh, and so we want to find alternative customers uh, across the board for them. So, so this should be a broad-based program. Again, developing new markets is an ongoing process anyway, but that effort will be accelerated. But the one program that will take the lion's share of the $12 billion is what Purdue calls the Market Facilitation Program, which will provide payments incrementally to soybeans, sorghum, corn, wheat, cotton, dairy, and hog producers. Giving them direct payments based on their production and USDA's calculations of their losses due to trade disruptions. For more on that, let's go to fellow USDA reporter Rod Bain. Well, Gary, now that USDA has announced its market facilitation program, one way to help some tariff-impacted producers via incremental payments, the work is underway to advance the program and move towards a site-up. Agriculture Department Chief Economist Rob Johansson says part of the gear-up involves ongoing calculations of payment rates. We are working out the specific details and we'll be publishing that as part of a rulemaking action and that will have our estimated rates. That publication is set to be released sometime in early August. As for the Agriculture Department's Farm Service Agency, which will oversee the new program, its acting deputy administrator, Brad Carmen, says sign-up will not start right away. That is due to necessary staff preparation and training to operate the market facilitation program. Yet Carmen adds, We anticipate a simple sign-up. Basically for 2018, for the crops that the secretary mentioned, producers will tell us production, will multiply it times a payment rate and give them a payment based on that. Formula. So according to Secretary Purdue and other USDA senior officials, the target date to make specific details available on the market facilitation program, including a sign-up period, is Labor Day. The Secretary also emphasizes that this program and the others meant to mitigate trade disruption impacts are meant as short-term solutions, primarily to get through this year's crop and marketing season. These are things that producers, when they planted in the spring, had no idea they were coming about. And back to you, Gary, with more on this story. Thanks, Rod. So it will be a while before farmers can get help from this aid program, but Undersecretary Greg Ibach says, at least for right now, this provides some uh, hope to farmers and ranchers. But the three-part program is serving at least three other objectives besides directly helping farmers. Sonny Purdue says it will also give President Trump time to work on a long-term trade policy and deal to benefit agriculture as well as all sectors of the American economy. And he said just having this program, announcing it now, also plays a role as a center of a message to the world. That other nations cannot bully our agricultural producers to force the United States to cave in. And Undersecretary Ibach said by having this $12 billion program to help our farmers during this uncertain trade atmosphere. Other countries will see that we're serious now about uh, trade negotiations. And President Trump told one group the other day that his tough stance on trade matters will lead to better trade deals eventually. The farmers will be the biggest beneficiary. Watch. We're opening up markets. You watch what's going to happen. So the three-part program to help U.S. farmers, in the meantime, will serve at least three other functions in the process. This has been Agriculture USA. I'm Gary Crawford for Rod Bain, reporting for the U.S. Department of Agriculture in Washington.
Farmers do appreciate that the administration recognizes the impact that recent tariff battles are having on agriculture, especially on commodity prices. Dale Moore, American Farm Bureau Federation Vice President of Public Affairs, says while farmers wait for aid details, they would much rather see the tariff disputes resolved in a way that opens vital overseas markets to American agricultural goods. U.S. exports of agricultural crops can reach 70% for some commodities like cotton. For some of the wheat along the Pacific Northwest, it can be as high as 60%. Soybeans has kind of been front and center uh, in terms of the impacts on this, and China is one of our major markets. In grain sorghum, earlier this year, actions related to China and uh, the impacts there. We had grain sorghum producers lost a $900 million market. There are still questions regarding how farmers can tap into the aid package, including what kind of information they'll have to provide. Moore says USDA officials told Farm Bureau that they hope to have more information in the next couple of weeks. We don't know exactly what information they're going to be looking for, but a number of the programs are going to work through the Farm Service Agency offices out across the country. A number of the programs are also going to be operating out of the Agricultural Marketing Service. So right now, what we don't know are the details of how sign-up is going to go, what information you as a farmer have to bring to the table, but we're certainly going to be monitoring that closely and getting that information out as soon as possible. USDA will help farmers through a food purchase program. Officials tell Farm Bureau that they'll make every effort not to disrupt ongoing business. What we also know is they've made it clear they're going to be very careful not to interfere with normal marketing and purchases out there, so they've got a lot of work to do on that front as well. We're looking forward to the tail end of August when the Federal Register notice is published so that we can get into some of these details. Chad Smith, Washington. Over half of U.S. farm households report losses from their farm businesses each year, that according to the USDA's Economic Research Service. In a report issued last week, the ERS, the Economic Research Service, says of the roughly 2 million U.S. farm households, slightly more than half report negative income from their farming operations each year. The proportion incurring farm losses is higher for households operating smaller farms where most or all of their income is typically derived from off-farm activities. The average income for households operating intermediate farms, that's less than $350,000 in gross cash farm income, and where the principal operator's primary occupation is farming, was $70,000. The average income for households with commercial farming operations, though, was $332,000. While 82% of households operating commercial farms had positive income from their farming business, only one-third of residents' farm households and slightly less than half of intermediate farm households had positive income from their farming operation in 2015. However, net farm income is not the total contributor to the financial well-being of farm families. Also to take into consideration, tax loss benefits, asset appreciation, that pushes the share of households with positive annual farm returns from 43 to 70%, according to that USDA study. 
This is one of the top song hits in Indonesia right now. It has a distinctively American flavor to it, which many there seem to like. And the preference for American flavor seems to be strong as well when it comes to food products. They say that they really, really want more U.S. products. That's Undersecretary of Agriculture for Trade, Ted McKinney. He and representatives from U.S. farm commodity groups, food and energy companies and others are back now from Indonesia after this past week's four-day trade mission to drum up business. And before leaving Jakarta, a very enthusiastic Ted McKinney got on the phone with reporters telling them we just finished a reception where we talked with people who came to buy and people who were already here as part of the delegation to sell and it is upbeat they are honestly upbeat some are just really excited about the opportunities they have the mission included more than 250 meetings between u.s sellers and potential indonesian buyers many of whom expressed preferences for more u.s products but mckinney also said what they want to buy right now, I believe, exceeds the ability to get there, mostly because of some government regulation uh, we're attempting to work through. And he said this week there may be some good news to report on that front. As to maybe forging a bilateral free trade deal with Indonesia, McKinney said that's really up to the U.S. trade representative to work on, but at meetings with Indonesian officials... I hinted that at some point we would love to do that. Now, well before the current trade conflicts, the tit-for-tat tariffs and all boiled up, the Agriculture Department was already urgently ramping up efforts to boost farm and food product exports. And now, with the tariffs and other trade disruptions a reality, it makes those efforts more urgent. The U.S. trade mission to Indonesia is the seventh such mission this year. In the past, maybe there would be two or three a year. But with farm incomes nearly half what they were just four years ago, with increasing production and now the trade disruptions... Your game better include an aggressive export strategy. Part of that is to have more trade missions because... Being there gets you closer to the customer, lets you hear their needs, address their needs, and that opens up trust. He said that we know trade missions do create sales and... We know one of these trips might make the difference, whether a farmer or rancher is in the red or in the black. So he says it is urgent to keep markets open where we can and where they are not open, maybe we can open them. There are two more trade missions on the docket this year, one to South Africa, one to South Korea. Gary Crawford for the U.S. Department of Agriculture, Washington. It's the peak of plum season in the San Joaquin Valley. The California Farm Bureau's Ag Alert reports that farmers report a normal-sized crop despite some weather concerns earlier in the season. But the ongoing trade dispute between the U.S. and China could affect the markets. China has been the top export market for California's plums, but the nation placed retaliatory tariffs on the fruit as well as a number of other U.S. farm products. California produces 100% of U.S. grown plums. The next few months are the peak of the livestock exhibition season for 4-H and FFA members attending events like fairs, sales, and judgings. And as Purdue University Extension's Bethany Funnel says, it is also peak time for biosecurity to be practiced by animal owners before, during, and after each show. The little things that we do to try to decrease transmission and try to set our animals up as best as possible for them to combat it and get healthy quicker is all a step in the right direction. Yet when it comes to disease prevention, Funnel says the best thing livestock owners should keep in mind is the threat of a virus or disease is always present. We can't prevent it all. We will have sick animals. We will have animals come together and pick up a virus and bring it home, and we will see that happen. So being prepared, knowing that it's probably going to happen, is half the battle. Prevention, as part of preparation, should be practiced. 
Funnell says first among steps should be vaccination of animals. When they do come into that co-mingled situation by vaccinating prior to that to try to get the animal's immune system to be responsive and to start to ramp up and be ready to fend off any of the pathogens, that's really going to help. If not prevent the disease, it will decrease the level of severity of the disease that the animal experiences and so they can recover a lot quicker. Minimizing contact between animals and their equipment at the show itself, or even between a show animal returning to the farm and their companion livestock that live there, can help minimize the risk of disease transmission. At some fairs, at some shows, animals won't be stalled immediately across from each other, or there will be a solid wall between them. If you're stalled next to somebody, if you can put your tack stall between your animals and the next person's animals, that's going to help kind of put a little bit of a spatial distance, which is going to help prevent disease transmission. Animals also should not share items like water buckets and feed pans. Funnel ads. If you're talking about feed pans, water buckets, show sticks, show halters, combs, anything that's actually going to touch the animal that really should be cleaned and disinfected as well as you possibly can to prevent transmission of anything you don't want. And that includes proper cleaning and disinfecting of the transport trailer. Show animals returning to the farm should also be kept in isolation for a 30-day period and temperatures taken daily for a period between 7 to 10 days to assure the health of all livestock on the property. I'm Rod Bain reporting for the U.S. Department of Agriculture in Washington, D.C. Here's one good thing about the heat wave we're having. Hot weather in California's desert farming regions gives farmers a good opportunity to kill pests and weeds. How? By heating the soil. Farmers use soil solarization. They spread clear plastic tarps over fields that will be planted with crops later in the year. The tarps heat the ground and kill soil-borne pathogens, as well as insects and many weed seeds. Farm advisors say placing the plastic sheets on the soil for four to six weeks in the summertime appears to be effective. Maybe you have plans to go outside and enjoy nature this summer. And while you're enjoying your wild place, take care of it. And one of the ways you can do that, the most simple way to do that, is to keep an eye out what the changes are, what's happening in those places. That was the Forest Service's Mike Gilmini, who talked about a new citizen science program. Wild Spotter is a program to help build that capacity to have your average person out there across the landscape. And visitors of these national forests come help us find and map invasive species in America's wild places. In other words, if you're out in a wild place and you see signs of invasive pests, you can report it directly to the Forest Service. They can just download the free apps, which we have, that are off of either the Android platforms or the uh, Apple platforms, whatever device you like to carry around. But also, if you're not interested in the technology and you just want to do this um, with a map and a crayon, that works too. He describes the process. So if you want to collect information on a map and then go back to your campsite or to your trailer or car and enter it through your phone, you can do that very simply. And it loads it up into a queue and it gets validated and uh, checked by professionals and then eventually used to help map these things in a big system. What kind of information is the Forest Service looking for? We're only asking for a few things. What you find, where you found it, and how much you found. And there's tools and resources to help each of these volunteers do that. He says public help to protect the land is needed because the spaces are so vast. The biggest problem we have is capacity to actually get the job done and to meet our missions and help to steward these resources. We've got over 193 million acres of national forests and grasslands across the country. That's about 174 or so national forests. Which, again, is why public help is so essential. And it's really tough to get out there and be able to monitor all this area, this uh, landscape. So the public is also out there enjoying these areas and visiting. And whether they're taking in a sunset or hiking on a trail or hunting elk or, or fishing for 
trout, whatever they might be doing, they're they're already there. And so letting them know what to be looking for and having them learn a few things, the basics, they can really lend a hand. There are 12 pilot forests in the program. They really span a variety of ecosystems. So we selected them to try to get the diversity, not just the different states that they're in. They span from Washington State all the way down to the east here um, in Arkansas and North Carolina and West Virginia. But we um, note that each of those areas have different types of habitats, different kinds of visitors, and also different invasive species. There will be more information about the 12 forests online, but volunteer participation in the Wild Spotter program is not limited to those 12 forests. The website address is www.wildspotter.org. This is Stephanie Ho for the U.S. Department of Agriculture in Washington, D.C. Water Deeply reports that wastewater from the city of Modesto that was once dumped into a river is now in a pipeline, and it's helping farmers survive drought and flooding new wetlands for migratory birds in the Central Valley. The project is called the North Valley Regional Recycled Water Project. Only a year after starting construction at a cost of $90 million, the project is already delivering recycled urban wastewater to farms and wildlife refuges in California's Central Valley. The project, which began delivering water in December, provides farmers in the Del Porto Water District with about 10,000 acre-feet of water. That's roughly a 25% increase over what they were allocated this year by the Federal Central Valley Project. And since the source is a steady stream of urban wastewater, it's an irrigation supply that won't change much from year to year. In comparison, allocations of Federal Central Valley Project water managed by the U.S. Bureau of Reclamation vary enormously depending on drought conditions, environmental issues, and other factors. Well, before you start watering your spinach, listen to this. In the Journal of Applied Microbiology, there was a recent study that came to this conclusion. Repeat irrigation with reclaimed wastewater is not recommended due to the increased contamination of E. coli on spinach leaves. Tests were conducted by the University of Maryland, the USDA, and Virginia Tech growing spinach and watering it with three different methods, reclaimed wastewater, roof harvest rainwater, and creek water. Of the three, the recycled wastewater samples contain the highest fecal bacterial indicator populations, and higher numbers of E. coli-positive spinach samples were reported from reclaimed wastewater irrigated spinach, especially with repeat irrigations. Elder Justice. It's a cause across America building support as seniors in our nation face potential issues such as elder abuse and exploitation. Yet the Deputy Secretary of Agriculture, Stephen Sensky, says rural senior citizens face greater vulnerability to abuse and scams than urban counterparts. On average, rural Americans are older. They usually have less housing options. They are more reliant on others to provide transportation. There's not as wide a range of services available to them. It's the focus of a collaborative effort headed by U.S. SDA and the Justice Department to address these issues in rural America. And it builds upon existing programs, such as those coordinated by Kathy Goins of Ohio State University Extension. So many older adults, and a lot of us are going through this ourselves with our own aging parents. If we are not on the proactive end of helping people maintain their independence. I'm Rod Bay, and coming up, developing strategies to improve and promote elder justice in this edition of Agriculture USA. 
Ohio State University Extension educator Kathy Goyne says seniors face some unique lifestyle changes and concerns, especially in rural areas. Some of those that were surveyed by the National Institute of Aging, a lot of them talked about the concern of loss of independence. That was number one, as well as isolation. And it is that increased state of vulnerability that factors into concerns such as elder abuse and greater susceptibility to scams. In addition, there are safety concerns related to rural seniors. For example, consider the average age of a farmer in the U.S. is 58 years old. Our older farmers are not stopping their work. They don't retire from their jobs. They continue to work throughout their whole life. These are among the reasons a working group has formed to address elder justice issues in rural America. This effort is headed by the Departments of Justice and Agriculture. The Deputy Secretary of Agriculture, Stephen Sensky, says this working group ties into existing efforts to boost rural prosperity through not only traditional justice methods. By working together with the prosecutors from the Department of Justice and rural areas, we can raise the awareness, but also then we can prosecute those folks that are preying upon our citizens in rural areas but greater prevention against exploitation with better services. Through rural development, we make investments in communities and work with community leaders to improve quality of life, whether that be telemedicine, we've built assisted living facilities, memory care units, behavioral health units. All of those things are services that can really help protect and assist our elderly populations. And Deputy Secretary Sensky says USDA can leverage its resources to aid in the mission of elder justice through information and education. We have the very extensive offices in every county in the nation. We touch a lot of rural Americans through our programs, and so we can raise awareness and visibility and make sure that we're connecting rural Americans with the legal resources through the Department of Justice. An important tool USDA already utilizes to protect seniors from abuse and fraud, and one that will be a vital part of efforts going forward, is funding through the National Institute of Food and Agriculture for land-grant university and cooperative extension programs for elder citizens in rural areas. A good example is Ohio State University. They have a series that is targeted towards seniors to try to help educate them on what they can do to make sure that they're protecting their personal safety and avoiding scams. What are the right questions to ask? Who can you contact if you do have concerns? How do you take care of yourself, even if you're just outside working or if you're out in the community, if you're shopping? What are those things if you're traveling? How do you keep yourself safe in all of those different places that you might choose to be? Kathy Goines is part of Ohio State Extension's Aging Smart Program, which gives seniors and their caregivers the tools to ask questions like she just listed to better protect themselves, all with the goal of allowing elders to age in their own home. While originally created for a classroom setting, as more seniors, especially in what Goines calls the young-old demographic of between 50 to 64 years old, are internet proficient. It's really helpful sometimes in our rural communities that they can stay at home. They don't have to drive to the class and they can still receive that information. A lot of those modules are interactive and it gives them links. The USDA-DOJ-led working group will spend the next few months creating a strategic plan for presentation at a Rural Elder Justice Summit this November in Iowa. Agriculture Deputy Secretary Sensky says this effort will take on a collaborative approach. We expect to have very robust participation from the different community leaders, the different services that are available there, along with the Department of Justice and the prosecutors that can be there. A collaboration, public and private, expected to expand to protect rural seniors in America. This has been Agriculture USA. I'm Rod Bain reporting for the U.S. Department of Agriculture in Washington, D.C.
Just 5% of California's farmers use cover cropping, but that's likely to increase as researchers work to quantify the amount of water that can be saved by the practice and its benefits for river ecosystems. The Water Deeply newsletter reports farmers are returning to the practice to curb the effects of a changing climate. As hotter and drier conditions hit most of the state, Central Valley growers are planting grasses and legumes under their trees to increase the carbon and nitrogen in their soils. And as implementation of the state's new drought-driven groundwater regulations approach, they're testing the ability of cover crops to increase the amount of water stored in the ground that grows their nuts and vegetables. What are you passionate about? Food? Clothing, politics, pets? Here's something you may not have thought about. Tractors are exciting to a lot of people. That was Peter Liebhold, a curator at the Smithsonian National Museum of American History. The institution named 2018 the Year of the Tractor and highlighted the occasion by exhibiting the Waterloo Boy, a tractor that debuted 100 years ago. 1918 is specifically the year that John Deere decides to get into the tractor business by buying an existing company and marketing the Waterloo Boy as part of their lineup. John Deere may be one of the best-known tractor brands, but it's not the only one. I grew up on International Harvester tractors, made by International Harvester headquartered in Chicago. That was ag broadcaster Max Armstrong, whose TV show has a regular feature on tractors. My mom and dad took delivery of a Farmall Super H the same summer they took delivery of me. And the dealership where they bought that tractor was two blocks from the hospital where I arrived that summer. He started driving that tractor when he was six years old, and it's not surprising that he now owns it. My allegiance is with the red tractors. You find very strong allegiance to the color of paint. I like them all. I must say, I do love a varied display of Case tractors, Alice Chalmers, Oliver, but Farmall Red is where my heart is. John Deere also has its signature color, green. I know some pranksters who have painted a John Deere tractor Farmall Red, and it makes everybody mad. It makes the Farmall guys angry. It makes the John Deere guys angry. It stirs them up, which is exactly what my buddies wanted to do when they painted that tractor a color that it was not supposed to be. If younger people these days are any indication, though, pranks like that may soon be history. They're not brand loyal like generations before them. As an example, if I have John Deere tractors on my farm, my dad had John Deere tractors, my granddad had John Deere tractors, that does not necessarily mean that my son will. That was Richard Fordyce, USDA's new Farm Service Agency Administrator. His comments came at the National Association of Farm Broadcasting's annual convention in the context of a study on agriculture and young people from Generation Z. They're going to get their nudges on purchasing from peers, people that they trust, people that they can have a conversation with that will advise them on what's better. They're going to look to value. At the same time, even this Farmall fan acknowledges that all tractors are good tractors, even the John Deere that's on display at the Smithsonian. It is a good representative sample of the mechanization of agriculture and how the mechanization changed that era of farming. This is Stephanie Ho for the U.S. Department of Agriculture in Washington, D.C. Thanks for listening to the KSTE Farm Hour. Heard every Sunday from noon until 1 p.m. Pacific Time and available anytime as a podcast. Download it at kste.com.